Teachers and preachers are judged with more intensity than other people. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And it's good to see you today and good to be a part of what you're doing. And open up the Bible because now it's time to study the book of James. James the Just, what a great one he is. Anyway, Corey is here with Ryan. What's going on, Corey? Well, I am going to be taking a look at the person of James, uh, trying to identify which James is mentioned here and what his life was like according to early church history. Ryan? Well, what are the seven pillars of wisdom referred to in Proverbs 9? Well, James the Just might give us the answer. All right, very good. Janice, what'd you do? One word, unleashed. <laughs> okay, so let's unleash our Bibles, open it up to the book of James, and we're going to study from James chapter 3. This is really interesting. Let's hear what God is saying. James 3, verses 1 through 12. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is un unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. You know, James 1 and 3, it, it gets very interesting because we're coming up quickly on Revelation. And that's going to be an exciting run as we go through that. But James is fascinating. I mean, the, the, the book of James is contained in what we call the general epistles or the general teaching letters. It was written actually by, we believe, James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Now, though James was born in the same household as Jesus, 
He did not believe that Jesus was Messiah, Yeshua Mashiach, until after Christ's resurrection from the dead. And actually, this seems to be the pattern because it is believed that Jesus' other brothers and sisters also came to repentance and salvation after the resurrection. Now, James was known as, I love this, James the Just, because of his righteous and pious character. In fact, it is said that his knees and tradition had large calluses on them due to his dedication to prayer. Think about that. Well, his book deals with holy living as a Christian. James deals with his subjects in a clear and direct way. His illustrations are direct and chosen. In three chapters of his book, we are forced to look at words, words that we say and words that we use, words. In a time of social media, words. Everybody's talking about words. Absolutely. We need to think this through. Take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage. If you don't have it, remember, we'll send you one. Go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and you can click on the Bible guide and download it. It brings you to a PDF file where you can get a hold of it just like we printed. Today, the unruly tongue. The unruly tongue. As I'm talking to you and you're listening to me, we're talking about the unruly tongue. Father, help me today. Help us today to learn how to talk well. And I'm aware of all of the passages. The soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Proverbs 15, 1. Lord, I, I understand all of it, I think. It's just doing it, Lord, that's the problem. Help me to do that and be with us as we learn this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen. You know, James the Just was fascinating. And let's take a look at what we've read here, because this is just a couple of verses here. Verse 1, listen carefully to what James says. He says, my brethren, my brethren. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Really? Yes, beloved, teachers and preachers and prophets and anybody in leadership are judged more carefully by God's kingdom than others. In other words, what we say is crucial to what we believe. There's a lot of people today saying, well, the Lord said this and the Lord said that and God told me this and God told me that. And we've seen a lot of people fail. Their words have fallen to the ground because God didn't say that. Beloved, we need to pay attention. When, when, when you have something to say and you say or tend to say, well, I have a word for you. Well, okay, if you have a word for me, that's great. But if God has a word for me, it better be right. I'm going to check it with the Bible. Now, if everybody said that before we said, I have a word for you from God, we might not have so many words from God. Keep that in mind. We need to pay attention to what we're saying because people will be judged. People who lord over others and want to take over. We just need to, we need to be careful. We must speak only what God says to us to speak. There are many times God talks. Most of the time God talks to us, it's for us, not for others. We need to listen to what he's saying to us. James chapter 3, verses 2 and 6. For we all stumble. All of us stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Now, who here can say he's perfect? 
able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouth that they may not or they may obey us, and we turn the whole body. Now, what does this mean? Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by very small rudders, whatever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Our words are often trouble. Trouble. We must pay careful attention to how we pray and listen. Listen to me carefully. There are people in Congress. There are people in the United States. There are people in other parts of the world. And they're being ridiculed over their social media networks because people are exchanging words. Words get people in trouble. Beloved Christians need to realize that Jesus Christ takes control because they don't have the ability over their mouth. It takes control over my mouth because I don't have the ability. Father, take control of my mouth. Holy Spirit, take control. What does that mean? We need to pay attention to what God says to us and pray more. Read the Bible more. Know what God said more. Very important, beloved, right now especially. James 3, 12, 7 to 12. For every kind of beast and bird of a reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. No man. And it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. What are we doing? Verse 10. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. What is that? My brethren... These things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same opening? Verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Is that possible? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh water. Listen. We must pray and work with the Lord's help <laughs> to what comes out of our mouth. Very important. God will help us if we trust in his correction. We don't like to be corrected as people, and yet God corrects us. We need to listen to his cre uh, correction and not everybody else's correction on social media, on all these different networks. We need to listen to the living God who doesn't need a computer, who doesn't, who speaks to your spirit when we're Christian. When we come to Jesus and invite him into our heart, there's a connection made. Spirit to spirit. God revives our spirit and he speaks to us as long as we pray and read the Bible. Read the Bible daily. Pray daily. We must make this a regular part of our life and we must listen to the Lord and modify are talking and singing. And above all, pray for your pastor because he is going to be judged differently. Pray for your pastor about what he says and how he preaches. 
Today I'm focused on both James chapter 3 and Proverbs 9, and these two passages might be connected. How? Well, Proverbs 9.1 declares that wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. Of course, this verse begs the question, what are these seven pillars of wisdom? Well, Proverbs doesn't give us the answer, but Jesus' half-brother James, also known as James the Just, might. So let's study. The Bible is a book full of numbers. In fact, it could be said that in the scriptures, numbers are as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Whether those numbers be general or specific figures, the Bible is clearly a book brimming with numbers. Perhaps most prominent is the number seven, which symbolizes divine perfection. Indeed, there are over 600 explicit occurrences of sevens throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Some examples include the seven days of creation, the seven days of rain after Noah enters the ark, the seven days between the doves, and Jacob serves seven years for each of his two wives. In the time of Joseph, there are seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. There are seven feasts of Israel, and there are seven priests with seven trumpets circling the city of Jericho seven times. And Solomon was seven years in building the temple. Even Solomon's book of Proverbs itself is an anthology of seven collections. While many of these occurrences of seven are fairly straightforward and self-explanatory, there are others which require some further inquiry. One such example is Wisdom's Seven Pillars in Proverbs 9.1. Wisdom, the proverb says, has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. While it is not explained here what exactly these seven pillars of wisdom are, the Bible scholar and father of modern creationism, Dr. Henry Morris, believed that Jesus' half-brother James answered this question. Morris notes that just as Proverbs is the Old Testament book of wisdom, contrasting wisdom and folly, so James in the New Testament contrasts the wisdom from above and that of the world, the flesh and the devil. In James 3.17, James does seem to identify the seven pillars or characteristics of wisdom. But the wisdom that is from above, says James, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So the seven pillars of the house of true wisdom are therefore built on Christ, the one foundation constituting the stability of genuine Christian character. These seven characteristics, as given in James 3.17, are thus the measure of genuine wisdom. So it seems that James answers the question about just what wisdom's seven pillars are. Number one is purity, two, peace, three, gentleness, four, willingness to yield, five, to be full of mercy and good fruits, six, to be without partiality, and seven, to be without hypocrisy. And of course, we mustn't forget in all of this that Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which the seven pillars of wisdom ultimately rest. And why are there seven pillars? Well. As I mentioned in the segment, the number seven symbolizes divine perfection. Good lessons from James, the brother of Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's also important to remember that the numbers uh, affect Jesus Christ and the church. We get the revelation and there are seven churches and there are seven stars, there are seven angels, there mm -hmm. are seven seals, seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath. And uh, so the, the number seven is important. In fact, there's three sevens in 
Revelation. So that's that's really interesting, Ryan. Thank mm-hmm. you for that report. For sure. Corey? All right. Well, we are studying in the New Testament book of James. So today you and I are going to be focusing in on the believed author of this New Testament book, which is James. He's referred to as James, the brother of Jesus or James the just. So this is not James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, apostle of Christ, disciple of Christ. This is someone different. So let's take a look at what we can learn about him, not only through the New Testament mentions about him, but also from early church history. Take a look. One of the most surprising early figureheads of the Christian church was James, the brother of Jesus. Early in Christian history, he was nicknamed James the Just to differentiate him from James, the apostle of Christ. Early Christian writers speak of James as exemplary in his religious life, living for God as a Jew dedicated to Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us much the same of James once he became a Christian, though it doesn't give us as much detail as we may like. The first mention of James in the Gospels comes from Matthew 13. When Jesus preaches in Nazareth, he's met with skepticism because the people had known him from childhood, knew his parents, naming his mother four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and mentioning that he also had sisters. Unimpressed with Jesus' origins, most of his hometown neighbors couldn't respect him as a teacher. In Mark 3, we learn that his brothers traveled to him to try to make him stop his ministry, thinking that he was out of his mind. And in John 7, his brothers try to convince him to go to the Passover festival in Jerusalem to prove himself as a teacher. It's noted that they did not believe in him. In their culture, family honor was of utmost importance. Jesus being so controversial would have brought the family into shame and disrespect. The next time we hear about James and the brothers of Christ in the Bible is in Acts 1, after the death and resurrection of Christ. They're with the apostles of Christ, dedicating themselves to prayer. So at some point between John 7 and Acts 1, the brothers of Christ went from skeptics to followers of him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, the Apostle Paul is describing the resurrection appearances of Jesus. He says that Jesus appeared to James and then the rest of the apostles. It seems that Jesus met with his brother, and for James and the rest, it changed everything. James then became a prominent leader of the Jerusalem church. The Apostle Paul called him a pillar of the church and speaks of him as on the same level or even higher than the other apostles. When a council was held to figure out what should be done with Christian Gentiles, whether they should also follow the Mosaic law, it was James who was given the last word. He discerned that Gentile Christians did not need to follow the law, though they did need to separate themselves from pagan practices, while not taking up Jewish ones. The first century Roman historian Josephus recorded the martyrdom of James, calling him the brother of Jesus and saying that he was sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin who stoned him. A later fourth century Christian historian tells us that an earlier Christian writer said that James was pushed off a high edge of the Temple Mount where he was addressing the crowd. When the fall didn't kill him, the religious leaders stoned him and finished him off with a club. This was a devastating loss for the Jerusalem church. And in addition, to the growing list of Christian martyrs.
James is a really, really interesting New Testament figure, perhaps a, an unlikely figure, especially coming from uh, his beginnings in the Gospels. But he very quickly became a pillar in the church, the Christian church, the Jerusalem church. Now, there is more to be said about James. And I had originally wanted to put uh, two segments back to back about James, but we're going to have to wait until next week just because of time. But uh, archaeologically, there there's more to be said about James and the potential bone box or ossuary that has recently surfaced. I think there's a lot of recent uh, things happening in the archaeology that are telling us things about James' adjustment. One of the things that sticks out about me or about James is they said he had calloused knees because he prayed so much. Right. And I think about that church tradition. He was known for praying, yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how calloused his knees were, but... Or, yeah, or if they, or that just became a saying about him because he was known to pray so much. Dunno, but, but it's what, interesting. I mean, when a guy prays that much, I mean, I, mm-hmm. we knew a guy, Mark Puntain, and every time you interrupted him, he passed away, and, and, and he's the Lord now, but every time you interrupted him, or every time you talked to him, you interrupted him. You felt like you were was, interrupting prayer, yeah. He was talking to God, you know, and so, it's, it's, excuse me, you know, <laughs> Mark, you know, and, uh, but it's interesting, James, because he didn't know the Lord at first. And this is fascinating. We don't have time. We've got to get to your segment. Mm-hmm. We don't have time to get into it, but we'll get into it in the future. Maybe in Church 365 in the future, we'll provide a couple of pieces because we're going to do that. And of course, he knew the Lord, but he yes. didn't know him or accept him That's as right. Messiah until after his resurrection. So it's it's quite the, the wonderful story. I don't know about you, but this chapter in James called The Untamable Tongue is very, hmm, well, it, it becomes very personal when you stop and think about it. Have you ever had moments like I do where I can hear myself talking and I'm telling myself inside my head to stop talking, just stop talking? Well, that's the untamable tongue. And that's why I called this segment today Unleashed, because James is talking about the tongue. And uh, I'm going to start here at verse six and just read a little bit of what he's saying. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. Now, if that doesn't put it into perspective of what James thinks about what we say, I don't know what will. Then he goes on to say, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren... These things ought not to be so. You know, I was reading in in another Bible commentary that this instinct of animals can be tamed or subdued through conditioning and punishment. But the sinful nature that inspires evil words is really beyond our control. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit within us that can bring this destructive force under control. And it's something that we have to submit ourselves to. We have to submit our mouth, our tongue, our thoughts to that which Jesus Christ tells us to do. And that is being submissive. 
That is not saying, well, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way I've learned to react. If it's not lining up with the way Jesus Christ tells us to be and just demonstrates to us in his word, then we are in error and we need to change and we can't do it on our own. We need the help of God's Holy Spirit within us and to submit to that. When we hear that voice saying, stop talking, we need to stop talking. There's some verses that I dug up just in honor of this. Psalm 139 verse 4. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That, my friend, is a sobering thought. Listen to it again. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. (laughs) Help us, O God, with our words and our tongue. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, the psalmist writes, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. What a powerful verse. What a powerful prayer. If we do rightly ask that, when we really mean it, and we put that into practice and let God help us with that. Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's quite the prayer. I think I need a big guard sometimes and have the Lord keep a watch over the door of my lips. Hebrew 13, verse 15. Therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's where our praise needs to be. But do not forget to do good and to share For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. That's Hebrew 13, verses 15 and 16. Let our lips be praising God. This is the time I tell you about Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 3.30. That's uh, Eastern time in the United States of America, New York time. When we have a prayer meeting live on Facebook and YouTube and uh, Bible Discovery TV, it's on the internet. Join us and we'll pray for you. Right now, let's pray and let's say this. Lord, I must learn to keep my mouth shut when necessary. Help me to place a guard over my mouth. Jesus' name.